Tens of thousands of American women suffer dangerous complications during pregnancy each year. Some die. Now the National Institutes of Health has awarded $24 million in grant money to form a new center of excellence devoted to maternal health research and improvement. Joining me with the details, the chief of the NIH Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch, Dr. Nahida Chaktura. Dr. Chaktura, good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. And your branch lives in one of the institutes, correct? Correct. My branch, the Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch, is in the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Okay. Well, a lot of words to describe something very important. And there's a parent program here that these grants come under called the IMPROVE program. So NIH and the Shriver Center were already on the beat, if you will, for pregnancy issues. Tell us about the IMPROVE program, first of all. Sure. So in response to the maternal health crisis that we had, the NIH launched the IMPROVE initiative, which is a multi-pronged initiative implementing a maternal health and pregnancy outcomes vision for everyone in 2019. This is an NIH-wide effort coordinated by a couple of institutes, including NICHD, the National Office of Research on Women's Health, and the National Institute of Nursing Research, but with many participating institutes at NIH. And the initiative focus is to reduce preventable causes of maternal morbidity and mortality, addressing disparities in maternal health outcomes, expanding implementation of evidence-based maternal health care practices before, during, and after pregnancy, building research capacity in community-based organizations, promoting access to maternal health care with innovative point-of-care technology, among other activities. And you mentioned the crisis in the country. What makes it a crisis? I mean, it would be a percentage of population that is having this problem or the percentage of pregnancies that have this issue. And what makes it a crisis in the United States? And where do we kind of rank worldwide on these types of problems? Compared to other high-income countries, the United States has a high rate of maternal death, with more than 1,200 such deaths occurring in 2021, the most in recent years where data is available. But in addition to that, each year, tens of thousands of Americans experience severe pregnancy-related complications, which can raise the risk of future health concerns, including high blood pressure, diabetes, and mental health conditions. And there are stark disparities in these maternal health outcomes by racial and ethnic groups, age, education, socioeconomic status, as well as geographic regions. Okay. So now that uh, you are establishing a center of excellence, and it's really through a grant program, uh, tell us what the center of excellence will specifically do under the IMPROVE project. So the Maternal Health Research Centers of Excellence is a new nationwide initiative to develop and evaluate innovative approaches to reducing pregnancy-related complications and deaths and to promote maternal health equity. As mentioned earlier, we need to address the growing maternal health crisis in the United States by identifying evidence-based solutions to promote health equity and improve outcomes. And this initiative works collaboratively that it includes community involvement in research so that the populations affected are part of the solution. And another component of the centers is that training the next generation of investigators to conduct maternal health research, addressing the needs of communities nationwide. 
It sounds like the crisis that you described in pregnancy and, and illness and dangers associated with pregnancy are not equally distributed across the population? Correct. There are stark inequities in maternal health outcomes. For example, for black women, they are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. There are also disparities, as mentioned earlier, by age, education, socioeconomic status, and geographic regions. There are no single causes, and so we need multifaceted approaches to reduce these maternal health disparities and adverse outcomes. And what works for one community may not work for the other. For example, one of the main drivers of the health crisis is lack of access to maternity care. More than 2.2 million women in the U.S. live in maternity care deserts with no access to obstetric care, and even more live in areas with low or moderate access to maternity care. So one of the strengths of these research centers is that they are geographically spread across the U.S. and will include the populations at risk for adverse outcomes as community members of the research teams come up with solutions. We're speaking with Dr. Nahida Choktura. She is the chief of the NIH Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch, part of the NICHD, and $24 million has gone out to grantees. Where did it go and what will they do first? So the research focus for these centers is broad, and so there are several programs listed that will be utilizing the funds for studies related to hypertension, postpartum care, diabetes, and other initiatives. So the proposed projects, again, for each of the centers will be the focus of research of each individual center. So these centers are teaching hospitals or academic hospitals or places like that? Mostly academic hospitals in partnership, again, with the communities that they serve. And so these hospitals, then, if they're in those communities where they serve, they could be near the so-called deserts that you say of healthcare access. Absolutely. They would be involving populations that are in rural communities and or even urban communities with obstetrical deserts. Interesting. I guess maybe the cause of the obstetrical deserts is probably something that you'll be researching. Why there are so few obstetricians and so forth in those areas in the first place. The centers will be researching alternatives. Some centers may be researching alternatives to care. Each research center is partnering with community collaborators, such as state, local policies, community health centers, and faith-based organizations so that they can work within their communities to address the needs of those communities. And a lot of other NIH institutes are involved in this whole project, too, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. The IMPROVE initiative includes multiple centers and institutes within NIH. So this is an NIH-wide activity that is being supported. Now, you are an obstetrician yourself, correct? Yes, I am. What is your hunch as to some of the possible causes of these disparate realities during pregnancy and unfortunate outcomes that are not equally distributed but localized with certain types and population characteristics. What do you think is going on here? As mentioned, we think that there are multiple factors that contribute to the disparities, including access to care, quality of care, underlying chronic conditions, and structural factors such as implicit bias and others that could be contributing to the maternal health adverse outcomes as well as disparities. 
but you're going to find out one way or another through these centers of excellence. So these centers are to work on solutions as well to understand what works for communities and how we can address some of the barriers that some communities are facing. And there's follow-on money if it becomes available through appropriations to keep building on these centers and the outcomes and the research, correct? Yes, we funded the first year at $24 million as part of the IMPROVE initiative, and these awards are for seven years, and so the grants are expected to last seven years. And in total, if we, pending availability of funds, we could have these centers for seven years. All right. Dr. Nahida Chaktura is chief of the NIH Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch, part of the NICHD. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage 
all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice, you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have 
multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the, and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.